Mormon Matters podcast features panel discussions of topics related to The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Whether about Mormon teachings, scriptures, contemporary events, or Mormon culture, it seeks to explore all themes with fairness and respect, searching for robust presentations of issues and compassion for all people and questions. The podcast is a production of the Open Stories Foundation and is seeking to build financial support that will help it continue to produce important and helpful content. All donations to Mormon Matters are fully tax deductible. To support the podcast, please become a monthly subscriber today at mormonmatters.org. Thank you for your support. that we had listed was living intention and you've talked about that to some degree just around the edges was there a was there a pearl or anything within that that you wanted to unpack a little bit more than we have so far how have you come to embrace that life is going to be a life with intention if you stay within mormonism or well I'm, i imagine you probably all life is going to be intention with something right but uh talk a little bit more about what the gist of that point you wanted to make today. Sure. I I think that, and again, I, I want to respect everybody's own personal journey, but I sit back personally and I watch individuals who, you know, they're full in Mormonism, orthodox, entrenched, and one day they come across the CES letter and 24 hours later they're sending in their resignation and walking away from it. And, and I'm hurt by that. And the main reason is not because they need to stay But rather, I think there's something valuable that happens when you stay in tension with that thing, whatever that thing is, and for us, it's Mormonism, and giving yourself time to process and allowing yourself to like really fully see that tension for what it is. Like it took me, it took me years, and I'm still doing it to some extent, but it took me years to like deconstruct this, put it back together. Oh, it works that way. And then go, oh, no, it doesn't work that way, and take it apart again and put it back together. And while it may seem like a fruitless effort because you're dealing with this this particular theology and this particular tool belt. The reality is that that constant going back and deconstructing and reconstructing has given me a deeper frame of thinking. It's given me a um, an encouragement and an actual walk into a later stage of development that I wouldn't have had if I just walked away cleanly from this thing. And so I'm not saying that people have to stay in the church. Like if I, Mormonism hurts you and it and it's damaging you or it's causing trauma, like please by all means, like feel you know feel free to walk away. You don't need my permission, but but feel free to go. But if you have the ability to stay and to wrestle with this. I think there's some huge positives that you get that you can't get if you remove as much of the tension away from your life as you can. Like there's some net benefit to staying in something that you have to wrestle with rather than removing all of those things or at least as many of them as you possibly can. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Whenever this topic comes up, I always think of this nice little – 
moment that in a book that I was working with Randy Paul on, and uh, and we were, were talking about what we don't want is a tension-free state. You know, what matters is that if your life is in tension, that you're still you've got something worthy to strive for, or, you know, something uh, we're using Victor Frankl's language in the, in the book. And it's, uh, you know, something worthy of the human spirit, I think is his actual language for that. So you don't want a tensionless state, but you can handle anything pretty much if you, if the other way. And then we compare that with, uh, George Costanza from Seinfeld. I don't know if you were ever a Seinfeld fan. I was, but, uh, you know, whenever things would get overwhelming to him, at least for a while on the show, he would just start, he would just stop and say, surrender now you know I, I didn't want to say that too loud just to blow everybody's ears out but this idea of I just want absolute peace I want to do it and I think there's what we want is something in the middle there I mean there are those times where it's important to remove yourself from the you know the damage and the noise and the things like that and to kind of find a place of centering but ultimately that's probably not the most fruitful place for you you're going to have to move on and be in the in that and do you ever like use when you talk about uh living intention you know all creativity is basically brought about by things in tension with each other you know what i mean there's there's all these positive framings for the word tension yeah no no new thing has ever been created that by somebody doing something the way it had always been done right Yeah. Right, like for something new and fresh and uh, living, and I think we use that phrase of the Mormonism, and, and I often hear it within progressive Mormonism, used kind of a different way. But this idea of a of a living church, there has to be these new things happening, these new concepts entering our collective thought, and so I think just doing things differently and thinking about things differently is is what allows one's individual faith as well as our collective faith to be living yeah yeah and you know right in there every pain can be in many ways growing pain or a labor pain that is you know about to give birth to something else that's good and better you know we can go into hegel and the dialectic with you know in fact back to the policy thing you know it looks like things were going along one way and you you talked about it being a precipice moment my guess is those forces within the quorum of the 12 they recognized this was a precipice moment that we're moving in this direction and a, a few of them said oh no we can't keep going that way and so they went backwards for a while or they took us you know into a a, a wrong turn for a while but, you know, the Hegelian dialectic is going to say it's going to swing back and then we'll have a new synthesis that'll be better for, you know, having done that. But, of course, uh, you and I are concentrating as much as we can on individual people being harmed in that area. But there's just lot, there's lots of ways with, uh, with tension. Yeah, you use the idea of labor, a, a, you know, a woman giving birth and having these pains before something new comes into the world. And, and I think it's interesting that if we pay attention the world seems to have a way of naturally teaching us such concepts. Like yep. there's something in this universe, again, however you define God, I don't care. There's something in this universe that's bigger than we are that seems to always be pointing us to that bigger thing. Yep. Absolutely.
You and I wanted to go probably just 20 to 30 minutes more. So we have, I think, two left on our list. Uh, we talked about, we decided we would talk a bit about faith development, about living intention, ethnocentrism, moving towards a more cosmocentric worldview, the, uh, you know, just beyond the borders of your tribe and those kinds of things. Uh, if you're comfortable moving on, let's now talk more directly, and this might be right what most people are hoping to hear. How do you view Mormonism now that, I mean, you've kind of talked a little bit about the tool belt. What what more would you want to say? You're holding your Mormonism and staying within it and fighting within it. Why? Because it is my tribe. Because even though I've moved into new paradigms where I'm able to value other tribes and their authorities, as well as develop my own, I also look back at my tribe and am able to see my 17-year-old self and the good that Mormonism was for that kid. And, and so, yes, as I become more aware, I recognize like there's parts of Mormonism that are that is deeply hurting others and causing trauma in their life and in places of really deep unhealthiness. But I that doesn't overwhelm me to the point where I that's all I see. Like, I still see this beautiful Mormonism that gives people a chance for the first time in their life to have responsibility. It tells, it tells these young couples ideas and concepts that, that push them to, to stay united as a family and to do certain things with their kids and to raise them a certain way. Like, Mormonism produces, on some level, like, good people, solid people, and and I don't want to like take that away. I don't want to be like, oh, Mormonism is so bad that I want to throw this out. Right. And, and so I think there's value in parsing Mormonism out in all of its parts and pieces and saying like, look at all these really good parts, these parts that really produce some net positive effect. And I don't want to see Mormonism die and burn to the ground. I have a lots of conversations, Dan, with people who are full in, people who are full out. And for some who are completely out, like they just want to see this thing burn to the ground. And I'm just not there. Like Mormonism has some really good pieces. And all I want to do is see Mormonism become better so that it discards some of that unhealthiness and that it maintains this positive effect that it has in people's lives. Like I'm telling you when I was 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, Mormonism was the very perfect thing in my life at that moment. And I don't want to take that away from somebody who's turning 17, 18, 19, 20 years old right now. Right. Which is age and stage appropriate, you know, when right. you, when you think in the development level stuff. Right. Like in a perfect world, Dan, like we would have a Mormonism that taught this rigidity, these literal stories to a certain age. And then maybe like as teenagers begin to have this own natural tension as they go through puberty and begin to challenge authority, you know, if at some point like Mormonism could develop into something that begins at that point to edge them into myth and to edge them into uh, non-literalists and to edge them into their own personal authority, which is what teenagers are claiming at that very moment anyway. Like Mormonism could do what it does, but do it a lot better. And so I stay because I still see the goodness that's in this thing and I want it, 
I want it to be better 100 years from now. I don't want it to be dead. I want it to be better. And so I hang around to be just one voice among yours and a thousand others that points us towards being something better and, and to hold us accountable to the unhealthiness that's present here. Wonderful. I love that. Let's talk a little bit about that idea of uh, nurturing, uh, you know, teenagers into, you know, let's say we were going to talk Fowler. That would be the beginning of stage four. There's all these different models and whatnot. But this is this is that movement to, you know, begin to own your own authority, to decide for yourself, to to weigh things and not just, uh, you know, accept because it's in a book that has been labeled as scripture, that has been labeled as the word of God. Let's actually see what in that book um, resonates with me as something deeper than just something that somebody labeled that way. Uh, all those different things. Do you, have you done any more concrete thinking on what that would look like for teenagers, young adults to welcome? Because that's really what I try to do is like, hey, you're in a crisis. Great. Welcome to the human race. You kind of said something similar to that earlier. Uh, this is an exciting time if you're willing to let it be. How can we communicate that within Mormonism is, is what I'm after. And I was just wondering if you've done any more thinking on that. I think we're all wrestling with that because I don't see a lot of voices out there giving real substance to that idea. And I think here's the reason. There's a great risk in this, right? Like if we if we encourage people to take on their own authority and we encourage people to move out of ethnocentricity, like the dynamics of our tribe changes significantly. And, and I'm worried – on some level, like regardless of what decision we make, Mormonism is going to shrink. Like if we do nothing and we hold on to this rigidity and we hold on to the authorities within our tribe are the best authorities and they're the only ones with real answers, like it feels like the information age is going to compel that tribe to shrink. Right. And, and yet if we take the other approach, which is to begin to say like, oh, we need to shift here and, and allow this tribe to be more encouraging of development. Like I think that causes this tribe to shrink as well. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're all kind of wrestling with like, is it right? Is it wrong? Is it better? Is it worse? But I would simply say this, like when I get to be, I didn't learn for the first time that President Kimball taught, for instance, that the rib that Eve was made from was figurative. Right. I didn't I didn't learn that until I was like 33 years old. And that shouldn't happen. And he even like, said it like, and it's of course figurative. It's like everyone should know that. <laughs> you right. know, and that's like, what? For a lot of people, yeah. And there is one sentence in the manual. So there is room if the teacher has the the wherewithal to like stop the lesson and to have a conversation about that. There's a space there to have it. The, the trouble is the mechanisms within this tribe are very protective of that ethnocentricity and new ideas really are not very welcome. New ideas can be squashed and, and squandered by those who see themselves as watchmen on the tower. And so there's just not a safe space often in Sunday school or priesthood for that matter, or Relief Society for that matter, uh, to have these kinds of conversations. But I would simply say, like, I should have had, someone should have had a conversation with me somewhere from, you know, when I joined the church at 17, 18, 19, 20, to begin to say like, oh, look at this idea. 
that idea is figurative. Or look at the book of Abraham. Some of these ways in which we frame the translation don't hold up. What are some other ideas for how this could still be seen as scripture? Like it's those kinds of conversations. Nobody needs to come in and say like, oh, this isn't true. All you have to do is create a space where people can come to those new ideas. Again, that living that yeah, living thing right. where people can come to those ideas themselves and it can be organic. And it doesn't need to be forced or compelled, but it also shouldn't be hidden and uh, and withheld either. Right, right. Yeah, boy, I have a lot of response. If we were a little bit more into just you and I kicking back and shooting the bull, I would say, first of all, they aren't new ideas. These ideas that we want to go are already embedded within the core of Mormonism. They're just not uh, showing their their full, you know, they're not being raised up the way they should. So all these different things about adult faith development that we're hoping to to begin to move people into, it's already there. It's not like it's foreign to Mormonism. It's foreign to the culture of Mormonism and the way it's taught and the curriculum and all that kind of stuff. But it's got it's got to be there. And then I guess the other thing is I'm right now I'm you know I, I'm I'm partly comfortable with the church kind of giving the space for these richer conversations to the internet and to podcasts like ours and whatnot. I'm, I'm okay with that as long as they will not then, you know, hit the hard line and say, don't listen to any voices out there. Or, you know, you, you get this reiteration every once in a while, only use approved materials. Those are the kinds of things that need to go because I think otherwise, Good ideas are good ideas. Joseph Smith says every good idea belongs within Mormonism. Brigham said something similar, and uh, I I just think we we need to do it. And I, I I'm I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about the institution doing it. And I'm not I'm not sure that it's actually the institution's job to do it. I think it's just their job to have space, you know, created yeah. for it. I don't yeah, know. I, I think like the mechanisms here are are to encourage one to stay in ethnocentricity. So I think you're right. Like there are ideas out there. Again, President Kimball's idea of the rib being figurative is in the Gospel Doctor Manual. The, the trouble is that what's in place within the tribe is a discouragement of listening to any other voice, a discouragement of trusting any other idea that's out there if the authorities within the tribe are also not stating that idea. And I think the moment you open up space to say that there is wisdom and truth outside of there, and we encourage you to go chase it down, mm-hmm. then I think you open up that space for people to to learn new things. The, the trouble right now is the way things are set up, you're lucky if 10 to 15% of Mormons feel enough of their own authority to kind of go off into those spaces and to begin learning those things. Which I think is going to be keeping increasing. Um, at least, uh, you know, I, I really do think it's going to happen. Those that stay, you know, when you get to that tension point and the make or break and uh, will my spiritual life be richer because I'm in tension, because I'm in relationship with people who don't agree with me, you know, all that wonderful Gene England kind of like why Mormonism or why the church is as true as the gospel stuff. Uh, if those if those who, who kind of honor or at least can see that as a healthy thing to be in a space where it's not an echo chamber, Chamber. That's not a bunch of people in the exact same spot on their spiritual journey. If you can do that, 
I think more and more people are being informed by these wider things, and we're going to get there. Um, we just did a show, you know, right on the heels of the baptism for the dead changes. I don't know if you caught that, Bill, but yeah. But but towards the end of that one, in in the second half, we started talking about the pace of change within the church, and you can't leave behind the center of the church. You can't leave behind, you know, the the woman who's barely holding on, and these are her three hours of peace, and she doesn't want new ideas. You know, at the same time, you still have to have the edges be just like, uh, you know, from below the earth, the cracks in the earth, the plate tectonics, that's where the nutrients come from. It's it's always from the edges or it's always from the in the cracks and stuff. And so uh, we just have to have a church that isn't so rigid and brittle that um, the good ideas can flow in. And I think we're, you know, a little slower pace at change than I want. But on the other hand, I'm not particularly a, an overly anxious guy. But of course, right. I, have to, I have to live with the choices of that. I have to own the fact that there's going to be casualties every damn day that it doesn't change. But on the other hand, I know there'd be casualties if I were a pure revolutionary too. Right. I, I would say, Dan, too, that like if you just take the average Latter-day Saint right now in the church, I think for the very first time, at least, at least for a hundred years, anyway. You'd have to go back to like Brigham Young to maybe see if this held true then. But I think for the first time in at least a hundred years, the average Latter Day Saint is aware that the authorities within their tribe make mistakes, mm-hmm. and that those mistakes are sometimes serious and sometimes cause harm. And I think that's an interesting conversation that's beginning to kind of bubble up right now at this very moment. Yeah. I do too. Yeah. I'm encouraged. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm temperamentally this way. And again, like I can always escape into the cosmos. It sounds like a little bit easier than you do. Uh, but, you know, I, I, the tire meets the road. I still am able to, to really appreciate these people who haven't thought a single thing, you know, out, out, into kind of the areas that I'm going at. I, I love their hearts. I love their goodness. I learn from them. I'm, you know, called up short by them. And, uh, you know, it's not always pleasant to have a mirror, but uh, when I catch myself there, ultimately when I can step back, I go, that was a good, that was a good that I was there this Sunday and kind of hated what was going on, you know? Yeah, and I think, I think the difference between you and me is that idea that you've, I think you've edged a little further into that cosmic centricity where you can kind of sit back and go, yeah, I mean, they're hurting each other, but those are humans being humans, and this is what humans have always done. And and while I can intellectually understand that stage, that's what I mean when I talk about development. I'm just not into that late stage yet, and so I can intellectualize the concepts that I've been told, but I'm just not at a place where I'm I'm living it yet. And and so I'm still kind of in that Fowler stage four, at least with one foot. And and still in that world centricity, at least with a large chunk of myself, right, right. that that I'm still invested in stomping my foot on the ground and saying enough is enough. We're going to <laughs> fix this today. I hear you, and uh, I'm glad for your voice. And I and I, you know, the shift like we talked about that you took a few years ago with the policy, uh, two I guess a little over two years ago. Um, I was glad for that. I know some people are like, oh, Bill Rills, next thing we know, he's out of the church. And again, you probably don't have any sense of destination, you know, ultimate destination for you and your family. But it sounds to me like you've stayed and you're you're still committed at this moment to to keep going, correct? Yeah, I mean, my 
my activity is different, my beliefs are different, but I'm still determined, at least right now, to be Mormon until I'm not. Our last topic area was the one that really made me eat my heart sing. And so in 15 minutes or so, I would love to have a discussion with you about moving from literalism to uh, being able to say myth without saying in ringing in your ears super loud, myth means false. (laughs) Tell us about that transition for you and... uh, why you have warmed up to the idea of living out of a myth rather than living out of a certainty or whatever it would be. So when you look around the world and you you open yourself up to other sacred text or mythological stories, and I'll use you know Zeus or some of the other Greek gods, for example, like it's easy to look at the Bhagavad Gita and to say like, oh, that's just fiction. That's just made up stuff. And so that becomes essentially useless. And, and if you take that approach, now you look at your own sacred text. And the moment you shift in your faith to the point where you no longer believe literally in the stories of the Old Testament, for example, all of a sudden that text becomes useless as well. And I just don't feel drawn to that. Like even... Even if the church tomorrow excommunicates me, and I already hold a non-historical view of the Book of Mormon, like I still see that text as sacred, and I see its stories as extremely useful. So I should state here, everybody I think that listens to your podcast should check out the book Sapiens. Yes, yeah, so I've had a bunch of people recommend that to me, and I haven't done it yet. One of the important things that it does is it engages a conversation around why myth is important. And it's this idea that human beings, through gossip, through being aware of each other, being kind of uh, having intimate closeness with each other, up to a group of about 150, you can maintain that cohesiveness. And if you think about if you ever belonged to like a really small ward, which I did, like the group was close and we knew each other and we didn't really need the theological stories of our religion to bind mm. us. Like we seemed to be connected in some other way. Like we knew each other and we loved each other and we wanted to be around each other. And then I come out here to Utah. I'm living in Southern Utah. I'm in, you know, a ward that takes up like four blocks of a, of a, of a town and there's like 300 people in this ward and we don't know each other and we're not connected and there's almost a feeling of like i don't i don't necessarily need to be around you to be okay and i think that plays out in this idea that once you get over a group of 150 you need something else to keep that cohesiveness and connectedness and so in the evolution of thought, what's come up is myth. And and like you say, myth doesn't have to be uh, something that's absolutely false. Like Joan of Arc is a real person, and even telling just the factual parts of her story at this point in our history be, is, is mythological, right? And yet there's also other parts of her story that are embellished. And I think once we realize like – Myth can be true, it can be false, it can be a mixture of both, but it still points to something underlying which is deeply true and, again, deeply living and, again, connects us to each other through these common stories. 
Like we can now go back into the Book of Mormon and say maybe Nephi's real, maybe he isn't, but some of the things that he's that he's pointing to in this narrative can be deeply spiritual and deeply helpful to us as human beings rethinking our own lives. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a wonderful way to, to phrase it. And and you've sort of said it without saying it. The fact that it's big, that it's more general, uh, you know, the story is, is, is big, also makes it roomy, which I love. You know what I mean? Uh, when you get this larger myth, you can t- then work within it to me to emphasize this or that. You know, when people tell the war in heaven, you know, myth within Mormonism or something like that, you could certainly, you know, take it in the direction of Satan wanted all the power and he wanted to be the top dog and he wanted everything like that. Or you could say, well, maybe Satan was just giving voice to that urge within us that says, does it really have to be that much pain? That much risk? Are you serious about that? Uh, You know, that part of us that you know, want safety. I can see why some people would be attracted to that. You know, you can do those sorts of things within the general myth. And yet, you know, if I, and I've taught lessons along those different lines, you know, on that topic, for instance, and people still recognize me as part of their group, part of their tribe. And yet we can differentiate within the myths, which is one of the, the things I like the most about it. Right. And I think myth doesn't have to just be religious, right? Like the idea of the United States of America exactly. and what our history provides is also mythological. Um, we we carry myths within our own family. Like exactly. This is who, this is who, this is who our who family person. is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or this person. Yeah. Right. But our and family moment, is about this. Yeah. In the moment we let, if we if we make an effort to completely let go of all myths in our life. Like we begin to isolate ourselves and we begin to lose whatever that connection is. And I just think whatever human beings are, like connectedness is crucial to our survival. And and I would simply say like myth is crucial to that connectedness. Absolutely. Absolutely. And would you say that scientism is a myth in terms of the sacks that science can handle every, uh, you know, fact, uh, every aspect of, of experience can be handled by hard fact science that could be repeatable or, or all those different things. That's scientism. And that would be a myth along with, you know, there's just even the myth that David Hume would tell us about that cause and effect. Cause if you only have your sense data, your sense data is only giving you the present moment information. And so for the, this follows that follows that is something that we had to create. He calls it a fiction within our mind to say X causes Y and uh, it's just one of those, everybody's living out a myth, and yet it's got this terrible phrasing, or people say, oh, my, my myth isn't really, a, or my story isn't really a myth, because it isn't inhabited by these gods with supernatural powers, or these heroes on these, you know, journeys uh, that, you know, they're aided by by this or that. Anyway, I'm just, I'm just rambling here a lot, but I, I, I appreciate the warmth that you've shared towards myth at a, and you're doing it. What I really like about this conversation, Bill, is it's really helping me recognize how big and 
you know, uh, cosmologically I go and you're far more in tune with those in crisis right now than I sometimes am. So I've really been appreciative of this. You know, talking about myth, Dan, you could, I mean, anybody listening, just grab your purse or grab your wallet, open it up and look at those pieces of paper that stand for something of worth when they're just pieces of paper with ink on them. Like everything in our life is a myth. Um, I, I just think we have to move past, like discovering that this story we thought was literal all of a sudden maybe isn't as literal as we thought it to be. And so now we need to discard it and we ought to recognize the value that that myth and all the other myths in our life hold in keeping us together and keeping us connected to each other. I just, I think there's too much risk in throwing all that away to, to not sit and examine it and say, is there still some usefulness here? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. No. And yeah, I actually wrote my master's thesis on myth and ritual. So I, again, I have tons and tons of stuff on here, but I'm, I think I'm content to just let, leave it where we have today in terms of, uh, recognize this at least let that begin to work on the edges of your soul if it hasn't already i guess maybe i would throw in one thing and maybe bill i'll just ask you if you kind of sense this too when we're talking about religious truth uh versus you know scientifically provable in the lab kind of uh this mixture will create this when heat is applied kind of stuff it seems to me that it's only it you know we're we're kind of dealing with uh, you know and I could quote William James or whatever we're dealing with the ineffable things that really can't be spoken that can only be felt and so uh, Richard Rohr the famous Franciscan uh, monk has the big five you know when you get into love when you get into God when you get into the idea of eternity when you get into when you face death and then I think the last one is true true horrible suffering your your rational mind just can't touch them and that means your language can't touch them and all sorts of things like that and that's why we have these stories that you know deal with relationships between humans and divine whatever that would mean or relationships between humans and each other and what makes for uh, uh, a hero in a is one who is loyal or in this case it's one who is brave or in that myth it's one who um, you know holds true to their values or you know all these things because you can't really say what they are you need the stories to communicate them and so that's the 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 place that religion works it's on those things that can't be talked about in any other way and therefore religion's naturally going to have a, a lot of myths that come up around it but but again it doesn't mean that they're not talking about something at the center that's you know deeply human and true yeah and, and i also think too that science tends to point us towards the rule tends to point us to if you do this then this is what happens and I think religion, while still, unfortunately, at times weighing too heavily on rules and boundaries, I also think religion gives us kind of a a backdrop and a setting to understand the exceptions to the rules, to understand mm-hmm. yeah. individuality. Nice. I like that. Yeah. And like you were talking about very early on, as soon as you move from the church to God, to be a vertically centered, you know, kind of uh, spiritual being to where it's, uh, 
you know, really within you and whatever these energies are that we, uh, in Mormonism, call God, uh, but whatever these connective, these uh, these extra, to me, I, I use energy a lot, which I know sounds all new agey and all that kind of stuff, but that's what it feels like to me. I, you know, get to the point where you can sort of weigh in a subtle way, this feels bigger, this feels more open, this yeah, this is delicious to me. Um, and, you know, when you were talking about you shift from something that you loved for a couple of weeks and then you saw that it, you know, wasn't quite as fully the answer as before, you can feel that energetically, too. You know, you can just kind of feel it within yourself. And if we stay within that realm, um, I mean, that's that's where I, I can't, that's what I that's where I hang my hat is on that ability to, to discern. And even if I don't discern clearly, slowly, but surely by, you know, taking a step in this direction or in that direction or following that thought through or serving this person or something, uh, you know, it becomes clearer to me what's right, what's wrong, what's important, what's less important. Yeah. I feel the same thing, Dan. Like it, I realize now that the paradigm I held 10 years ago is completely disassembled and reassembled into something that's very different. And and it would be easy, I think, it would be easy for me just to throw God out completely or to throw out religion completely. And yet there's something, and I, I don't know what it is, but there's something out there that is bigger than I am and calls me to stay engaged in the conversation and to have my eyes at least looking to see that in moments and to feel that and to sense like there's just something more than than that basest kind of interpretation of, of what the world is and how it came to be. Mm, I love it. I love it. I'm going to, when, when you said there's just something, I love William James's term for it. He says, the more. He just says, whatever it is, he, you know, he doesn't yeah. try to name it, mm, the more. Yeah. And it has real effects in our lives. And then he has one other little thing that I don't think I've really ever shared on the podcast before, but I know I wrote a, a dis, or excuse me, an editorial when I was at Sunstone about this, but it's this idea he says, I don't know what the world means. I don't know if it's a real fight, if real things are at stake or not, or if this is just like a, he kind of talks in terms like solipsism or whatever, where it's just a private play where nothing really matters. You know, the actors come on, the actors go off. He goes, I don't know if there's any real stakes, but he goes, it feels like there is, <laughs> you know, it feels like I'm in a real fight. And so therefore I act as if those things mattered. And that's to me, like, you know, to live out of a theory that doesn't match what we just feel, what you just articulated, that something matters there. There's something calling me there to live out of a theory that dismisses that as bunk or mumbo jumbo or anything like that just because there was at one time attached or even till day has attached these magical fanciful gods and demons and whatnot to it just to dismiss it for that reason is uh that just doesn't that doesn't work for me i'm 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 in it because it feels like a real fight yeah mm. amen Good. Well, brother, I enjoyed the heck out of this. Thank you for being my first guest of my explicit 
permission to myself to uh, interview people in more depth about topics of interest to them. And it's been great to get to know you better. I mean, we've interacted a few times online, a little bit in person, but uh, it's been a real treat for me to get a feel. And I certainly listen to lots of your podcasts and, uh, and I plan to listen more. Like I say, I'm in the one with you and Jack right now. But it's just been great, and I hope our listeners will find Mormon Discussions. They will find or a Mormon Discussion podcast, and then the Mormon Discussions, which is going to grow into its uh, a new website and all that stuff. And they'll find these other sub ones, and they can be extra things for their gym or their mowing or snow shoveling. Uh, <laughs> those that's when that and long drives. That's all my podcast listening is uh, is during those things. But uh, there's more options out there, folks. Yeah, I, I love it, Dan, and I love the idea that like once you enter these later stages, and again, your listeners understand this ground, relationships become more real, and having conversations like this are are crucial to my well being, and I, and I assume the well being of those who who tune in. Like that that deeper, authentic, vulnerable. Let's just lay it out and talk about things the way they really are, or at least as we as we grow into thinking they really are, like those become so necessary at this point in our lives. We don't want that shallow surface level conversations. We want something to kind of open us up and kind of see what's inside and makes us tick. Mm, Love it. Hey, thank you. Thank you. And listeners, I'm going to link to a whole bunch of things that were mentioned on this podcast. So uh, many of them will point you towards Bill Real and some of the books that he recommended as well. And I thank you for your listenership, for your friendship, for the emails like Bill talked about. Uh, I know he enjoys getting and hearing from his listeners. And there's sort of a little community that comes around when uh, when people engage with podcasts and with the hosts. And we love it. We're both doing it out of passion. Uh, it's nice that a little bit of money comes our way. But uh, we love more. So if anybody enjoys this, Bill, would you be welcome to more uh, donations? I would love that, my friend. It would help us keep this work going. (laughs) Sounds good. And same thing here with Mormon Matters. Thank you for all that you do, everyone out there. Uh, Please keep listening. Please tell your friends about it. And we'll see you next time. So uh, until then, I'll just do the normal Mormon Matters sign-off for the day and just say it's time to cue the music. Thank you for joining us today on Mormon Matters Podcast. To discuss this podcast with others, please check us out at mormonmatters.org. Mormon Matters contains no ads, relying for its funding solely upon the support of people like you, its listeners. To keep it moving forward, please consider a monthly subscription or make a tax-deductible donation today at mormonmatters.org. Music for this podcast was brought to you by Shalan Hunt Clayson. You can hear more of her music by visiting her Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Chelan's Music, C-H-E-L-A-N-S-M-U-S-I-C. The Mormon Matters logo was generously provided by studiocase.com. Thank you for listening. Searching.